Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Heritage Matters. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Today we'll hear from Judy Southworth, who tells the story of a ship of would-be settlers and the consequences of shooting an albatross. I talked to a member of the Light Rail Trust taking the first step toward a new cable car. Jane Edwards talks to a retired Dominican nun about life in St. Dominic's Priory. Bill Southworth visits a fascinating museum at Outram. And Keith Scott tells us what happened to the first Chinese man at the Naseby Goldfields. But first, the Heritage News. Work is about to commence on the historic Victorian-style Dunedin Prison, which stands opposite to the city's railway station. More than half a million dollars' worth of restoration will start with work on the outside of the prison to return it to its original appearance. The Otago Prison Trust says it's got close enough to its fundraising target of $550,000 for work to commence on September the 1st. The 120-year-old building was decommissioned in 2011. It carries a Category 1 grading from Heritage New Zealand. Uses such as a restaurant, a backpacker's hostel and the museum and shop have been suggested for the building. An exhibition has opened in the French town of belloy en santerre in Picardy, near the Somme, honouring one of New Zealand's least-known war heroes. Working-class Dunedin boy James Waddell joined the French Foreign Legion, rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. He was considered a brilliant leader and commanded Legion battalions at Gallipoli, the Somme and Verdun. His battalion also liberated belloy en santerre from the Germans. Waddell was awarded the Croix de Guerre eight times and was made first a chevalier and then commander of the Legion of Honour. Born in Dunedin in 1873, he spent most of his childhood in Cromwell, but attended Otago Boys High School and the University of Canterbury. He died at the age of 82 and is buried in the Levin Cemetery. New Zealander Jasmine Minnett spent seven years researching Waddell's history, and she's the curator of the exhibition. A service has been held this month at London's United Synagogue to mark the life of Sir Julius Vogel, a former Premier of New Zealand and founder of the Otago Daily Times. Vogel, a British Jew, represented the Dunedin suburbs in Parliament in the 1870s and is best known for his extensive public works policies, which included the building of many of the main railway lines in New Zealand. Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence, a former senior rabbi of Auckland, led the service in London, and a haka was led by Ngati Renana Maori Club. The news that a cable car museum, hopefully followed by the restoration of a cable car up High Street, is planned, has awakened memories in some older Dunedin residents of the great age of city cable cars. Joan Hardy told us of her memories. My husband used to live in High Street, and he used that cable car... And, of course, the the driver was fine. He was in his wee cabin driving the cable car. But the conductor had to swing around the outside, uh, hanging on to leather straps. And he used to have to take the money, give change, click the ticket, cut the ticket off. And John knew an elderly gentleman in um, Mornington who used to walk up the 
cable car lines afterwards, picking up all the money that was dropped. And later in the programme, there'll be an extended item on the plans for the museum. The 122-year-old Hyde Railway Station and its rolling stock will live on now that the $15,000 needed to buy them has been raised. The Department of Conservation is fronted up with the money because it believes the station is an important part of our rail heritage and will be a good addition to the Otago Central Rail Trail. It's hoping to reopen the station in time for next season's rail trail. Dunedin's first trolley bus has been returned to the city 50 years after it was taken out of service. Prior to that, it had seen 16 years of use in Dunedin. It had been designed specifically for Dunedin conditions, and the first route to open was number 6, Queen's Gardens to the Gardens via Castle Street. The trolley bus has spent decades parked by the seaside in Wellington, and the Otago Heritage Bus Society has yet to assess what damage the salty sea air has caused. The Society hopes to raise the money to get it up and running again, but if that's not possible, at least it should be restored enough to put it on display. And that's the news. And now, diaries and things. Judy Southworth has been looking at a shipboard diary of a Scottish settler to Dunedin who found that arguments between a ship's master and the crew were bad enough, but that mistreating the bird life had even worse consequences. If the passengers and crew of immigrant ships to New Zealand were aware of the warning of Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem The Rime of the Ancient Mariner regarding killing an albatross, they didn't heed that warning. Albatross were a welcome catch. A diarist, James Wilson, on the Strathfieldsea, which voyaged from Glasgow to Port Chalmers in 1858, noted two albatross catches. March 28. We caught an albatross today, which measured 10 feet one inch from wing to wing, and it was counted a small one. But it was a strong bird. It entangled itself on the line and was not hooked at all. It was very ill to kill and at last had to be poisoned with prussic acid. I assisted the cabin passengers to skin it. They are mostly all feathered. No wonder Roundshot would not kill them. April 9. We had good sport today, fishing albatross. We caught one of them measuring 10 feet 8 and a half inches over the wings. The other two were 10 feet 5 inches. I have the head of one of them preserved. There is pipe making out of the bones and quills of them. There were two of them boiled into soup, which they say was good, but I would not taste it. I did not like the colour of the flesh. Newspapers of the day reported on a series of incidents on board following the killing of the albatrosses, which seemed to bear out the warning sailors gave about bad luck following such killings. The Strathfieldsay crew appeared before a magistrate in Dunedin to make complaints against the master. These included insufficient accommodation requiring them to sleep on their chests, the master's drunkenness, and the firing of a musket loaded with ball along the deck while the crew were there, the ball carrying off the second mate's finger. The master was further accused of badly managing the food supplies, details being given of the agreed amounts to be provided and the small amounts actually provided. The magistrate stated that he'd see that proper accommodation was provided for the crew. However, the men weren't satisfied with this and refused to return to the ship. A charge of desertion was handed down to them and they were sentenced to 12 weeks hard labour. The master was initially sent to prison in Dunedin and then bailed. He sailed away on another ship soon after, forfeiting his bail. 
Another aspect of the trip brings us back to the warnings and the rhyme of the ancient mariner. A month into the voyage, passengers had been told that unless they gathered water for themselves, they'd get none next day. What was gathered by the crew wasn't from an awning, but from the deck, complete with hen dirt. The water was given to the cook, who refused to use it. The water problem obviously continued, as near the end of the voyage in May, passengers had no dinner, being told by the cook that this was because there was no water. So, back to Coleridge's poem. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Those of us following the nesting albatross chick on the webcam on the Otago Peninsula can be grateful for the change in attitude to these magnificent birds. And shipboard life, for both crew and passengers, also seems to have improved considerably. Those diary entries were read by Aberdeen-born Dick Brazendale. It's the most wonderful street in Dunedin, perhaps in the country, swooping down from Mornington, cascading onto steps and flowing down the long incline towards what was the city centre. Superannuitants will remember High Street when the cable cars trundled up and down. They may have held to a soiled leather strap while the street slipped by inches from their heels. Younger people might wonder why the street is so wide. The line was opened in 1883 and the last cable car was gripped back into the Terminus building in 1957. The romantics and tourism visionaries amongst us have wondered why and what might have been had this unique, quaint and today's careful society challenging mode of transport endured. Since we became sensitive to the needs of the first tourists haplessly wandering the quiet Sunday streets of Dunedin in search of a decent feed or entertainment, there have been stirrings. Wouldn't they love it? We could be the San Francisco of the Southern Hemisphere. Let's bring back the cable car. Well, now there's a tantalizing possibility. Neville Jemmett is a member of the Dunedin Heritage Light Rail Trust. Well, it's a group that's going to hopefully bring the cable cars back down to high streets and, and from the exchange up to Mornington and back. So that is the principal ambition. What have you got at the moment? At the moment, we've um, since uh, the last council meeting, we now have a piece of land that we can put a building on and bring some of the restored cable cars that used to go up and down High Street back so people can come and see them. So you've got restored cable cars elsewhere in the country and yep. they're coming back they, to they be in back. this museum. We, we've we've uh, got an agreement to lease some cable cars from Ferrymead once we have the building built. And how long will that take? <laughs> how long is a piece of string? Yeah. Um, no, it's it's hopefully we can get it all up and running before Christmas. But you've got a there's a five year lease I understand on the land. There's a five year plus another two five years. Yes. Uh, so what? So what's the council doing here? Are they maintaining control of this? What are they doing? No, no, they've just we we just applied for a <coughs> lease of land and um, took nine months to get to the city council. By the time we went through the process, and um, it came up at the council meeting and they voted for it unanimously. So this is at the top. This is at Mornington. This is right next door to where the old toilet block used to be or still is now. The old that's on Mornington that? Park. On Mornington Park. Magnificent itself. situation. Yeah. The reason why we're not going to the original ones is one, it's across the road, and there's more cars now than there were in 57. And ah. so it's going to cost a lot of money to try and keep wait until you get a gap in the cars to get across the road. And it's also now it's the health centre. I see. So the museum will contain uh, cable cars returned to Dunedin from wherever they happen to yeah, be. Yeah, well, the Wee Museum, that's only a temporary museum until we raise enough money for the big building, which will be on, on the same okay, site. Okay, so how do you raise your money? Starting with this, hopefully with, a, with, with people can see that, that what we've got 
can be something really good, good tourist attraction and everything else, um, we believe they'll get them behind us. Or well, we know they will. I've heard people already tell me, you show us what well, you've got. Well, I, mean, I think it's been perfectly plain in, in Dunedin over the past few years that a lot of people would love to see a cable car back on High Street. So now mm-hmm. I guess it's come to the crunch. Yeah, well, we, we've, run, we've run a lot of surveys. When um, the late Phil Cole was our chairperson, mm-hmm. he did surveys all through Mornington, all through quite a lot of the Dunedin. And uh, we had over uh, 1,500 submissions back <coughs> and only two objected. Only two. Out of the what about the, the residents of High Street? They're the ones that were quite keen on it because they're all um, B&Bs and quite a lot of things like that up there, so they're quite happy to have tourists going up and down there because they get their B&Bs advertised. So what motivates your interest? I mean, you've been working on this a long time and you're well, quite, obviously quite passionate. Well, I never seen the cable car working until two years ago. I came from Christchurch, so I've never seen one in my life before. I went down to a um, book opening but by Don McCara. But you've seen a few trams in Christchurch There's in your time. There's trams in there, yes. Yeah. But I went to a book opening by Don McCara mm-hmm. and uh, he suggested that maybe we should try and take up a, a project to get the cable car back. So several of us got together and um, here we are. Here you are. And this is just the first step. It's yes, it's the best step because all, all the other things before then have always, as, as you see on this table here, it's all on paper. Yeah. And now we can we can actually show a footprint on the ground and say this is where the cable car building will be. Yes, I should explain to to the listeners Neville that you've brought all these photographs of restored and semi-restored. Uh, cable cars and of course the trailer which used to go up High Street. That's right. Yeah, I've been on that many times. Fantastic. It is. It looks good too now. It's been it's been uh, rebuilt. It's taken nearly thirty years by uh, volunteers to rebuild that one, and it's back to the original colours when it was first made in uh, twenty oh three, uh, nineteen oh three. Yeah, well, Same colours. The pity of it is we haven't got the time to go into why the no. cable car was taken off the route in the first place. How do you think, very briefly, the city will benefit from the reintroduction of the cable car? Oh, I reckon it'll be a big tourist attraction. I really do. I mean, I've been to San Francisco, and they were going to close theirs down, and um, and they, a lady, an older lady fought for that, and now it's one of the biggest tourist attractions over there, and this will be the same. This will draw people all over the place, especially if they're the heritage What do the cars. San Francisco people think of your idea? Oh, they're really right behind us. They've, they've offered support, and uh, the man that looks after the cable car museum... It's coming over next year, and um, so we're going to get him on board and get him pushing things along for us. I've been talking with Neville Jemmett of the Dunedin Heritage Light Rail Trust. The City Council has agreed to lease the trust land in Mornington Park on which to build a cable car museum. Those were the days, my friend, we thought they'd never end. Mr Ty the Fishman... Yes, he used to come round with his with his van, and he had a horse. Uh, so when he used to fillet the fish on the back of the van and take the scales off, then he wiped his big knife on the horse's tail. Not acceptable today. Those were the days, my friend, we thought they'd never end. Our recent story that St Dominic's Priory in Dunedin is to be restored has rekindled memories of its history especially for Sister Elizabeth Mackey. Sister Elizabeth went to high school there, then became a nun, a teacher, and the principal. She was among the last group of Dominican sisters to move out when the priory closed more than 30 years ago. She shared some of her memories of St. Dominic's with Jane Edwards. Elizabeth Mackey was what was known as a train girl, someone who travelled to school by train from Port Chalmers. 
It was her desire to learn Latin that took her to St Dominic's from 1948 to 1952, where, she says, she was well taught by committed women, although the nuns were strict about uniform, hair and manners. Elizabeth said she was happy there and remembers missing only one day of her secondary schooling. After a year at university, she joined the Dominican order as a postulant, going on to final profession three years later and becoming a teacher and eventually the principal of St Dominic's College. What differences did she find between being a schoolgirl and a nun? We were semi-enclosed. We did go out, but only by taxi. Um, a lot of services came. For instance, we couldn't go downtown and buy a pair of shoes, so shoes got sent up. Oh. And we tried them on. So we, that level of enclosure, we didn't visit our homes, we didn't leave our family, we left our families and didn't expect ever to go back. But we interacted, of course, with the children as we were ready to be able to teach them. We had a lot of silence. Most of the day was in silence, except for a couple of periods of recreation. So that was very different from being at school. I'd lived in a very sheltered home and hadn't expanded very far at all, hadn't travelled anywhere and had holidays with the family, had never been alone in a house ever, hadn't flattered. So I went from one confined environment into another and among women whom I already knew as teachers and with a whole bunch of younger people at my stage of religious life, early, where we had we built up our own community and friendships mm-hmm. and fun, and uh, but also the development into the into the way of life. I expected it to be hard and strict and mm-hmm. all of that, and I found it less so than I had anticipated. Mm-hmm. What what aspects became harder later? Mm. I think later you realise that you're never going to have children. Mm. Um, Later you realise that some of the things you're asked to do are really tough. I was still studying at university here when I was assisting in the infirmary with older sisters and it included caring for the dying and I learnt then to lay out a dead person. Well, they were challenges for a young woman. Mm who hadn't had any experience in any of that at all. Sister Elizabeth Mackey left the Priory in Dunedin to study at Oxford in England and had various teaching posts on returning to New Zealand, including in Auckland and at Otago University. St Dominic's College closed in the 1970s and the convent in 1983, by which time Sister Elizabeth was back living there. She was one of about half a dozen nuns who had the difficult task of overseeing the final closure of the priory. Everybody who'd ever lived there had left something behind as far as, as far as we could see and there was an attic at the top of one building and there was a basement at the bottom of the other and they were all full of stuff. Oh. So you can imagine half a dozen, some not so young, and having to deal with all of this and clear it and dispose of it and sell off. We were quite rational about it. We decided that some of the furniture was antique, so we got a good antique dealer 
who took most of it and paid us a, a, a reasonable amount, which we then invested and have been are still using the interest from that as a small um, source of income. What's well, not? It's, oh. No, we use it as a charitable. As a, as a source of charitable donations. Mm. So small charitable donations come out of our charity fund mm. that came out of the furniture from the Priory. According to Sister Elizabeth, the nuns had not been able to deal with the deteriorating building. It was really sad to leave it in the state that it was in by the time we left. And if anybody can bring it back to life again, it would be wonderful. It's a beautiful building. Architecturally, it's, it's amazing. It has lovely features. I think we became even more attached to it in those in that year before we left. People were taking an interest in it, and we became more proud of it than we were when it was used as a sort of utilitarian place to live in. And you realised the beauty of the building as we were pointing out its features to others. And it was also totally designed to fit an enclosed contemplative way of life so we had an area like doctor's stairs so the doctor could come in a door had his own staircase to go up to the infirmary area without having to pass through parts of the convent that were for us alone and in which other people did not enter and so it's totally monastic in its structure to match the life that was intended to be lived in it. Sister Elizabeth Mackey talking there to Jane Edwards. A group of Tyree residents noticed in the early 1970s that many valuable local artefacts were being sent to the tip and that historic buildings were also in danger of demolition. They got together and formed the Tyree Historical Society with museum premises on the hill overlooking the Outram Township. Bill Southworth paid them a visit to see what they had managed to save for posterity. I'm standing here on a ridge above Outram looking out across the Tyree Plain and below there is the beautiful Tyree River shining like metal on this lovely day. It's cold but very beautiful. And just around me here there's old farm machinery, ploughs, other instruments from the days of backbreaking agricultural labour and there are many buildings here on the ridge that have been put here by the Tyree Society. There's a courthouse, there's a, an old school, an old church and various other buildings. And uh, Neil Gamble, a local farmer, is about to show me around and explain what everything is doing here. Every building up here, and I think we've got six we've brought up now, all the buildings have been brought from a site nearby, either in Outram or the furthest would be the Berwick Presbyterian Church, which we've brought from Berwick. The other buildings, we've brought up the courthouse, uh, which it's been jacked up. The Outram Jail, we've, we've got that. Um, the Outram School, and it was it's so tall it had to be cut in half just above the windows to lower it somewhat. Um, and uh, there's an engine shed, uh, which we'll see in a minute. And um, it was the, uh, at one time, there was a railway line between Mosgill and Outram from, uh, I think it was the late 1800s up to 1953. And, and that engine shed was where they kept the engine in Outram overnight. Um, so it's here. And then there's the Berwick Presbyterian Church and also uh, the Outram Town Board Office, which is quite a small little building, only about three metres by four. And it's where the actual town board of Outram met um, when in the, back in the day. Now in the, what was, the old Outram Courthouse, 
which was situated beside Outram School and, and Outram. It's still largely as it was. The bench is over yonder where the judge sat, and uh, in front of him was the secretarial type person that kept a record of the do's and deeds, I suppose. And um, where we're standing right now. Uh, was where the the offender stood when he heard his charges read. There's a little fence behind me. Uh, that that wall faced the street, and this is where the friends of the um, accused could come in and sit around the wall at that, that bench to hear this case being heard. Um, prior to being heard, the prisoner was kept in the room diagonally opposite, and then brought in here. Um, there is in the middle on the other side of that wall is uh, where you paid your fine. It's like a little post office counter. So after you were dealt with, I guess, if you weren't locked up, you were paid your fine there. I think most of the uh, gold robber type um, cases would have been held elsewhere uh, because there was a, a case where a guy just on the hills behind us held up quite a number of people as they made their way back from Lawrence. Stick him up. Stick them up, exactly. Stick them yeah. up. Same. And he tied them to trees and made off with their, uh, everything he had. It could be the watches and odd bits of gold. And in those days, um, it was amazing how quickly he got away. He got from there to Dunedin. He got on a ship and gone. And meanwhile, the people that were tied to the trees couldn't get, uh, somebody got their ropes undone in the middle of the night and undone the other people. And they walked straight down the hill to the town of Woodside and raised the alarm. But this guy, uh, had already gone on a ship and oddly even without cell phones and all our modern conveniences he he was arrested a few days later in sydney pawning uh, a watch belonging to one of the uh, people so but this this particular guy made a life of uh, being a, arrested and jailed and stuff like that the next building that i'm taken to is a very large shed and inside is an enormous looking thing it's literally the size of one of uh, richie's uh, tourist buses it's made entirely out of wood and apparently it's the way you um, thresh things to get oats on a farm it worked last in 1960 it's quite high it's about three meters high i guess and about uh well it's quite long as well and it was built in about 1898 in britain it's a clayton and shuttleworth so who made a lot of uh, traction, oh, well, thrashing units. Uh, this unit was used at North Tyree and it thrashed all over the Tyree by contractors, uh, usually pulled by a traction engine and in turn towing a stationary baler and a chaff cutter and you did the whole job. That interview was with Tyree Farmer and Historical Society member Neil Gamble. Finally in this programme, Keith Scott looks at the crude outburst of racism on the goldfields of Naseby. Arpak arrived in Naseby in June 1867. He was the first Chinese there and planned to start a market garden. The Otago witness reported what happened. Instead of treating him as became the free trading spirit of the British nation, one or two of the townspeople cut off his pigtail and otherwise maltreated him and finally enclosed him in a large cask and rolled the terrified man about the town, much to their barbarian amusement. Arpak escaped his tormentors and sought out the police. The Naseby police locked him up. For his own safety, they later claimed, but Arpak did not know that. He spoke no English. The Otago witness continued the story. After having arranged blankets under his bedroll to simulate a person in bed and leaving a pair of boots and other personal effects in the cell, the poor fellow eventually escaped, terrified from the European treatment he had received 
and after wandering about in the cold, without the greater part of his clothing, he managed to reach Kyburn. Leaving Kyburn, he tried to make his way to Macrae's flat to friends. He approached a farmstead for food and assistance, but was seen off with a shotgun. Eventually, the police found him wandering about the countryside, and Sub Inspector Sincock reported that R. Pack was under the delusion that he was being followed by men who were going to murder him. He was arrested for lunacy and taken to Hamilton's. R. Pack was certainly in an agitated state, as the Otago witness wrote. The man's reason had become so deranged by recollections of former brutal treatment that he shrank from the sight of Europeans, especially when a dozen or two men and boys collected to gaze upon the first Chinese visitor to this township. He made several attempts to get away, uttering the most piercing shrieks. Sergeant Finnegan then took him back to Naseby and locked him up again, stating, "I am afraid to let him go, as I fear he is insane." The police kept him in confinement for twelve days until the court next sat, when he would be tried for lunacy. The Otago Daily Times protested strongly about what had happened to Arpak. We never expected to record such cowardly treatment on an individual stranger in any part of the British Dominions. Had a British subject suffered like treatment in Chinese Tartary, Her Majesty's ship would have been sent to demand satisfaction. Otago Police Commissioner Sinjin Brannigan had to face questions from the government, and so demanded his own satisfaction from his police force as to why the men involved in the initial assault had not been charged. Sincock replied to Brannigan, "Undoubtedly, the Chinaman had been hustled, and that some drunken men had maltreated him, but not seriously. There were no marks of violence on him." But why did Sincock not mention the barrel episode or the cutting off of the pigtail? Sincock then noted that he had great difficulty in getting any information from the townsfolk as to what exactly had happened or who was responsible. But he believed they were not locals, and he told Brannigan, "Much of this has been much exaggerated. The Chinaman was a great liar, and I'm strongly of the opinion that a good deal of his conduct was assumed." For purposes of his own. No matter how we look at this story, some things don't add up. On the one hand, Arpak is described in the newspaper as poor and trembling, escaping from his persecutors. That may have been an exaggeration, but Sincock thought Arpak was the one who was exaggerating. But somewhere between the cynicism and the romanticism lies the truth. And that is the terrible time Arpak had. A stranger arrives in a strange place in the hope of starting a business. By sheer misfortune, he is set upon by some drunken thugs who apparently are just passing through town. He is subjected to a frightening attack. Despite what Sincock thought, no one else ever questioned Arpak about being rolled about in a barrel. He runs to the police. But he finds himself in the lockup. Even if he did understand that he was there for his own protection, what possible good was a court case going to do him except put him in danger of reprisals? So he ran away. Then he gets lost. He is shot at, and then taken into custody by the police again, and stared at like a sideshow freak. These events must have left him traumatized enough for Constable Finnegan to think that he had gone mad. But things got even worse.
instead of being helped to get to his friends at Macrae's, he was taken back to Naseby, charged and locked up again. He was now the criminal, although he had done nothing wrong. He had got caught up in a situation that had turned high hopes into a horrible nightmare and he was completely isolated from his countrymen. When the court did sit, there was at least some leniency. The local doctor refused to certify Arpak as insane. The magistrate released him and he was sent off to Dunedin, the cost of the ticket being paid out of the Miners' Relief Fund. But that was not the end of it. The damage had been done. In mid-January 1868, the Omaru Times reported that Arpak has become a hopeless maniac and is now in the Dunedin Lunatic Asylum. That story from historian Keith Scott. This program will be repeated at 7pm this Sunday. It's been brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust with support from the Centre for Research on Colonial Culture at the University of Otago. FM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.